as Jesse said, uh, there's a tendency in the church, and if we're honest, within ourselves, for time and repetition to create dogma. Or basically, when you think of, if you're not familiar with the word, it's unquestionable doctrine. Things that we accept as truth and we, and we hold on to. But the real question is, what is our source for that? Because if you have dogma, if you have doctrines that are accepted, do they come from things that are in God's Word, that is unchanging, that is inerrant? We have holy Scripture breathed out by God as our rule of faith and practice. Or have the things of man crept in, with maybe without us even noticing? And so a lot of these accompanying traditions, they seem well-meaning. So I'm going to talk about a lot of them later. There are many I could bring up, but this is an obvious one that we could bring up. So as an example, prohibition. So the idea that people shouldn't get drunk is commendable. Is that something that, that we should argue for? Absolutely. But what happens is, in our minds, because something can lead to something bad, well, maybe we should just curb that and take it a step further and take it a step further and then prohibition becomes equal with being a christian and so for many it's if you if you drink at all because it could potentially lead to drunkenness then you couldn't possibly be a christian this is one of my favorite stories when i first moved to sanford um if you've been in florida for a while uh sanford's got lots of old south in it and so one of the first alive after fives we were at we were meeting people and uh, I was introducing myself as a new pastor in town, and, and one of the local restaurant owners, I won't say her name, but, uh, or the restaurant, but she was really sweet. She found out I was, a, I was a pastor, and she said, I just want you to know that there has never been any alcohol in our establishment ever. And so, uh, and, and she was very proud of herself, and uh, the Lord softened me a lot in the last few years, but my response was probably not the best, but I said, I like alcohol. And her eyes about jumped out of her head. Then I said, well, so did Jesus. That was his first miracle, turning water into wine. And she was just, our conversation was done after that. I thought it was funny. Um, (laughs) But it just saddens me that when people hear Christian, when they hear pastor, they hear these these traditional elements that that have been passed down and, and passed down, and they assume that they are canon or rule or law. And so that's one of the greater spiritual problems that we're going to address this morning. Because if you allow the things of man to creep into the things of God, it's actually going to follow our outline. Tradition will soon lead to hypocrisy. And if it takes its natural course, hypocrisy will lead to rejection. And so we're going to follow that through in our text this morning. And so really what's at the heart of our text this morning, so we're going to take it from our culture to their culture. So, uh, you don't get this reading in the English, and if you're not from the Middle East, you won't get this either, or particularly if you're not Jewish. But what's at, what's at stake right now is the written versus the oral tradition. And so, essentially, Torah versus Mishnah. So, Torah, the Hebrew word for, for law, uh, this is the first five books of the Bible. And so, this is where you get the law for God's people. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Numbers is in there, too. Um, no one ever reads numbers anyway. Sorry, I'm just uh, I'm in, I'm in one of those moods today, so you guys are just gonna have to have to bear with me. Um, so so that's Torah. Mishnah means to be repeated. So the the repeated oral law 
uh, is an accompaniment in the Jewish law to the law of God. And so it was passed down orally. We don't know where it originated from, but it was all written down about 200 A.D. And if you read the Mishnah, which is still read and exercised today, at least 25% of it is, uh, is, is regarding ritualistic purity, like all of these cleanliness laws. And so here's where the distinction lies. We don't know where the Mishnah began, but Jews claim that on Sinai, many Jews, and especially the Jews in Jesus' day, that Moses received two types of law. He received the written law, but also the oral law. So, interestingly, there's no mention of an additional oral law in the written law. But, that's what they claim. And so they believe that God gave an, an additional oral law to help you interpret the written law and to, and to practice it that has been passed down from Moses until the Pharisees. So there's an old rabbinical saying that tradition is offense to Torah. Not offense, it, it, it can be, but it is offense, F-E-N-C-E. And so the idea is that because we want to hold up God's word, the, the words that are, that are uh, spoken out by the mouth of God, we're going to create a fence around it to guard and to protect it. And to make sure that before you get to God's word, that you have to go through this fence which we've created. And the Catholic Church has a similar saying and a, and a similar tradition. We see hundreds of years within that in the Catholic Church. That because they are the keepers of God's word that, that they must protect it. They must guard it. And so additional protection on top of additional protection on top of additional protection is added. Now again, the road to hell, right? It, it sounds good. We want to protect God's word. Of course we do. That's a good thing, right? But think about it like this. How do we view God's word? Do we view it as so anemic and, and ineffective that, that we must protect it lest someone else damage it? God's word being like a beautiful vineyard that feeds whoever comes and feasts on it. Yet the keepers of the law think that we need a fence around this vineyard because we need to protect it, we need to guard it, lest anyone eat of it in a different way than we think they should. So the, so the, the fence is continually built, but what happens when you build a fence around a vineyard? Well, soon you begin to not be able to see it, but also not enter it. And what these rabbis don't realize they're doing is they're building the fence from the outside. Because no one else can enter it, but neither can they. And Jesus is going to say the same thing in Matthew 23. We'll, we'll look at that, that later. And so they are keeping themselves out of God's vineyard. The feast and nourishment and life that comes from God's word, they are keeping others out and keeping themselves out in like order. So this morning, I'm going to, you know, I like my alternate title. So this morning, it's Jesus and the uh, Fence Builders. Kind of like a bad, uh, like, folk band. But that's what, we're, that's what we're reading. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. And this is also the germaphobe's favorite passage. You'll see why. I told you, I'm one of those moods today. This is what happens when all the theology students go home. I can just goof off. <laughs> All right, so Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray. Lord, we are a people who constantly praise you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your love. I am proud and encouraged to be a part of a church that praises you for your commandments. Not that we want to be legalists or we want to bind up the rest of the world, but because we know that your commands are good. They come from a loving God who wants to save his people from death from despair and disappointment in this life. We praise you that your commands are good and just and right and true. Forgive us, Lord, when we become pharisaical, when we get our ideas of what must be done and add on to your word. And we create fences around your word that keep other people out, often keeping ourselves out. Lord, transform our hearts that we may be joyful worshipers, that we may obey in spirit and truth, we may exalt Christ in everything we say and do, that your spirit would teach us, guide us, rebuke us when necessary, that they would know us by our love for one another and the way we keep your commandments. And that the world would see righteousness and justice and faithfulness and peace through your people because we live by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and with some of the scribes, so we're familiar with these names, but if we're going to look at a lot of cultural context going on here. So the Pharisees, they were the most influential sect that was among the Jews. And so they kind of had their, their, their hands in the, the teaching and the application of the written and also the oral law. But they leaned heavily on the oral law. And this is where the scribes come in. So not surprisingly, many Pharisees were scribes. And so scribes were not a sect, they were a profession. So these were people who were tasked with studying, writing down, transmitting, and um, applying the word or the, the, the oral tradition, the, the, the Mishnah. And so they're often called the lawyers. These are the, the legal expert, experts within the, within the Sanhedrin, and this is their, their profession. And so this is kind of two sides to the legalism coin. 
You know, you've got the obsessive observance on one side of the Pharisees, and then you've got the enforcement of the scribes. And sometimes these, these two things uh, interact with one another. But that's essentially what's going on. This very stringent observance, but also uh, enforcement of these rules on all of the Jews. And so they came from Jerusalem. They hear about Jesus. And uh, of course, they, they want to engage with him. And so here's what we, we see in verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. This is always what they do. They're looking for some way to accuse or, or attack I picture them like a panther, you know, that you don't know a panther is, is stalking you, but he's always watching. He is waiting for you to make a mistake. He is waiting for you to turn your back so he can pounce on you. This is exactly what they do. They sit back and watch until there's something that they can, they can pick at. And so this word here, defiled, we're going to land here for just a moment. This should be in air quotes because this is defiled in their estimation. This is defiled according to them. So they have an obsession with external purity. What does defiled mean in their, in their estimation? First, let's look at what defiled means biblically. So if you look at all of God's law that we have written, you look in, look in Leviticus, the Levitical priests were the only ones who were required to regularly, ceremonially cleanse themselves. They were the only ones. There was only one reference to everyone else and them having to clarify or um, cleanse themselves. So in order for you as a, as a uh, Jewish citizen to be defiled, you'd either have to touch someone with a disease or a bodily discharge. These are the only two things that required ceremonial washing. However, they take the standard for the Levitical priests and apply it to everyone else. And so this concern for defilement grew within the intertestamental period because the uh, temple was, was destroyed, uh, the people were, were scattered, and they wanted to guard themselves against the Gentiles. And so they begin to rein in and, and heap on these levels of tradition. But also it kind of became this badge of honor for the social elites. They would put themselves above the commoners, the Yam Ha'aretz, the, the, the people of the land. And so they would pride themselves on how clean they were and, and how externally righteous they looked before everyone else. And they would put all of these burdens on the, other, on the people so they could look like them and be like them. And so, so biblically, the, the, uh, what, is, what will defile you is very small. And so what are they referring to here? The disciples are eating with defiled hands. Well, it could be any number of things. Jesus, uh, we've already seen him heal someone with leprosy. We've seen him interact with Gentiles and tax collectors, touch a, a, a woman who had a flow of blood, raise a dead body from the grave. Any number of these things could be defiled in, uh, in the Pharisees' estimation. But in reality, they probably just didn't do the normal uh, process that they would do before a meal. I'm, I want to get to that in just a moment. We don't, we don't know, but whatever it was, it wasn't up to their standard. And so Mark kind of gives us this, this parenthetical explanation. So he gives us a little parentheses section here this is for mark's roman audience and this is good for us too because if you just read through this oh they ate with defiled hands how dare they but mark goes into greater detail on what he meant by that so picking up in verse three for the pharisees and all the jews this is a general genuine kind of a general regular practice this is widely accepted most jews did this for the pharisees and all the jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly um 
there are two words for wash in here. The first one is a, is a partial washing, the same word that would be used when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It was uh, kind of a, a ceremonial thing. It was a rinsing with, with water, just a, a regular practice. And so they would not eat unless they washed their hands properly. Now, this is really hard to translate. We don't know what it means other than with a fist. So the best thing we can understand is this, this was a washing that went over both hands that your entire fist would be covered to make sure that your hands were clean. You would, you, you would rinse both. And, um, and so I actually want to read one of the traditions from the Talmud, which would be helpful here. So the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed uh, their, their hands with a fist, holding on to the traditions of the elders. What do the traditions of the elders say? So let's, uh, I'm going to give you your, your Jewish history lesson for the moment. Because what happens with a lot of Christians is when we try to share the gospel with Jews, we will quote the Old Testament, the written word of God. But to them, the Mishnah, the oral tradition, the, is, is on par with the written word of God, and most often it is, it is used more or placed higher than the word of God. In addition to the mis- Mishnah, there's the Talmud. And the, the, the Talmud is the commentary to the Mishnah. All of these are seen as authoritative. So you've got the Tanakh, the Old, school, the, uh, Old Testament Old, school, Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, the uh, Mishnah, which is the repeated oral tradition, and then you've got the Talmud, which comments on the Mishnah. See, we're a couple generations removed here. But this is in the uh, Talmud, which is, which is probably before 200 AD. Uh, so this was most certainly some version of this was around when, in Jesus' day. And so they, they say, as guests enter, they sit down in chairs, and water is brought to them, with which they wash one hand. Uh, this is presumably the, uh, the uh, right hand. Whichever hand you favor, that one is washed first. After the cup is, is taken, when each one speaks the blessing, and there's a particular prayer here that many observant Jews still use today. They would say this blessing, uh, God of heaven and earth, it kind of goes on. One speaks the blessing over wine partaken of before dinner. Presently, they all lie down at table. Water is again brought to them with which they now wash both hands preparatory to the meal when the blessing is spoken over the bread and they and then over the cup by the chief person at the feast or else by one selected by way of distinction so there is this process anytime they would get together to eat this would be done um and these 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 washing vessels would be in almost every home and so if you invited someone you had to go through this every time you would eat kind of like we would pray before a meal they would go through the ceremony of of washing of hands this was so important and i'm not making this up that one of the quotes in the Talmud is that if you do not wash before a meal, it is equal to having sex with a prostitute. This is, what, this is how highly the rabbis held this. They even said that it is worse to defy the Mishnah than it is the Scriptures. This is what many observant Jews still hold to today. So, my point in saying this is when you talk to a Jew... Uh, and you quote scripture, they said, that's okay, but the rabbis say. And so the rabbis' teaching would always be, is in most circles, still held above the teaching of, of scripture. So uh, make sure you know where they're, they're coming from. So this is the washing that they generally do before, uh, before a meal. Verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, now here's something different, they do not eat unless they wash. Now a lot of your Bibles have a little note in there about wash. So let's think about the marketplace for a minute. 
The marketplace is where all of the world comes together. This is not just a Jewish marketplace. Gentiles are there, all kinds of pagans and unclean foods. There are just way too many variables. Because, if you, because they are so high on their view of, of observance, if you bump into someone who may be diseased or who may be unclean, now your elbow or your knee is unclean. This second word here is to baptize. A different type of washing. This is an immersion. This is a complete covering. Because when you go out into the marketplace, any part of you may be unclean and you don't want to break the Mishnah. So when they go into the marketplace, they do not eat unless, uh, unless they baptize. It means exactly what you think it means. Now, is this literal? Uh, could be. I wouldn't put it past them. But the idea is a complete cleansing, a complete washing. And so they would wash everything that they would eat out of. Uh, the, let's see, marketplace, and they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, all these things. Now, dining couches, this, this, is, this uh, trips up a lot of English readers. So uh, let me just help you here. It's the same word for bed. Like if you look at verse 30 in the same chapter, same word. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. Uh, they're not like us. We don't have a separate couch and a separate bed. These are, th- these are mats. They're either cloth or straw that can be rolled up. It would be easy to, to baptize or to immerse a mat. And the idea here is if, you, if there was any kind of bodily discharge or someone who was unclean sat on or slept on this, you would not want to contaminate the meal. This is the extent that they went to. So you get an idea of, of what's going on here. None of this is, is, in, is in the scriptures. And this is what Jesus is faced with. This is what Jesus is, is uh, addressing. And so they added to the list of what God calls unclean, and they added to the requirements to purify those things that they make unclean. And this is not for sanitary concern. Like They have no idea about germ transmission and all that. This is, this is their own view of what is ceremonially clean. And so it's important to think, like, did they care more about God's word than a sanitized dinner? Then I had to think about, do we care more about God's word than a sanitized dinner? And that's an interesting question in 2020. So this is what Jesus is facing. And now the Pharisees speak with all the, the, the background in place. Mark tells us what they say. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? You notice that Jesus is always the target. They, they pull out the disciples. Look what your disciples are doing, but they address Jesus. And notice their appeal for authority. Why do your disciples not keep the tradition of the elders? This is the standard. Why do they not walk? Uh, this is another Hebrew word, halakha, which is, uh, a, a reference to the, the, the oral tradition as far as practice. Why do they not walk according to these things? So they're appealing to a very particular part of the, of the Mishnah here. And so the, the Jewish audience would, would know that. Mark's kind of helping us understand this. And so if you're interested in this whole interaction between uh, Jesus and, and the Pharisees, and I didn't pull this off the top of my head, I had to do a lot of research, but uh, A.T. Robertson has a really helpful book called The Pharisees and Jesus. It's an old book written in, in the 20s, but still uh, highly referenced in a really good, a really good read. So it's A.T. Robertson, the Pharisees, and Jesus. So here we are. Here's the situation. Here's what they say. Here is the hardness of their heart, the traditions of men, and now we're going to see Jesus' response to this whole thing. 
And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? This well is kind of a weird translation, but it's right, beautiful, good. It's, it's, it's a good thing. It is a beautiful thing that Isaiah spoke of you this way because it is right and it is true. You hypocrites. This is a Greek term that means someone who wears a mask. It's a pretender. You're one thing on the outside and you're something else on the inside. He's is, he is calling them for what they are. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, quoting from Isaiah 23 here, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching is doctrines, the commandments of men. Doctrine, the right thinking of God, equating it with the commandments of men. I want you to look at the context of Isaiah 29 because it is helpful for us. Because in it, there's a condemnation and there's, and there's a promise and there's a reason why what's going on is going on. So in Isaiah 29, I'm going to read 13 through 16. And the Lord said, because this people, speaking of the Jews, speaking of Judea here, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, hypocrites, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They don't fear me for me. They fear me from what man has imposed on me. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. Here's the promise. With wonder upon wonder. These people whose hearts are far from me, they are hypocrites, but I'm going to continue to show them who I am. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. This is the wisdom of, right now we're seeing Jesus and the Pharisees, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Now he kind of peels back the curtain, and we'll get to more of this next week. But here's what's going on in the mind of the Pharisee or the, the, the Jew who is being a hypocrite. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. Imagine the arrogance to think we can hide within ourselves what we're doing. God won't know. These deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us? Who knows? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should save its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed of him who formed it, he has no understanding? That is the key line here. Why does man feel the need to add tradition to the word of God? Because God doesn't know as well as I do. I know what's better for my people than God does. So I'm going to add on to that. That's exactly what's going on here. The clay is saying to the potter, you aren't good enough. You don't know enough. You sit back. I'll take it from here, God. You got us started. I'm going to take it from this point on. What they're really saying is that they know better than God. This is a false worship based in human wisdom. So I want to look at a couple passages from Matthew 23. Uh, Matthew 23 is the great chapter of the, the woes of the, the scribes and, and Pharisees where he pronounces condemnation on them for their actions. We're just going to look at a couple. Picking up in verse 13 of Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is the fence. You're putting a fence around the word of God. You shut it in their faces. You don't allow them to go in and you're locking yourselves out too. Now we get, there's, there's the philosophy. Now we get into the practice. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's exactly what they're doing with the washing. These, ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. This is one of Jesus' best illustrations. Picture this for a moment. They are so concerned with these tiny little gnats that you can't even see. We're going to strain them out of people's drinks. Yet over here, popping camels like Tic Tacs. This is how ridiculous this is. You're missing the weightier things, the big things, and you, you've, you've got your, your, your uh, Scrooge McDuck spectacles on, trying to pull out every little speck of impurity. And he goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Uh, in case you're wondering, Jesus is not talking about plates and cups here. He's talking about the Pharisees. We're going to get into that more next week. But first, it is a matter of the heart that you must be cleaned inside. Your, your heart of stone must be turned to a heart of flesh. You must be brought to life before you can worry about this cleanliness on the outside. And too many Christians do the same thing. Too many Christians try to make people clean on the outside before they are clean on the inside. They hold this, this, this high standard of here's all the things that you have to do to be a Christian before even asking if they know Jesus. We've got to be careful that we don't do the same thing. We've got to be careful that we're not so consumed with what's going on in the exterior that we do not take the temperature of the heart because until the Holy Spirit trans you, transforms you from the inside out, all the cleaning up and dressing up you can do on the outside means nothing. Because it is not these religious people who Jesus came for. They don't need a Savior. They're the Savior of themselves. It is those who know how dirty they are. Know how defiled they are. They, they know they need a Savior. It isn't the self-righteous religious people. This is why Jesus says the harsh words that he does in verse 8. You, the condemnation on them, leave the commandment of God to hold on to the tradition of men. You leave going away from something and holding on to something else. This is like leaving a feast to go home and make it out of Play-Doh. You leave the commandment of God to hold on to the traditions of men. Look at this beautiful feast I made out of Play-Doh. When God gives you nourishment and life forever. Notice Jesus' appeal for authority here. You leave the commandment of God authority and holds the tradition of men. This is why this comes up so often in our Hebrew study. That we hold fast to our confession. The word of God that tells us who God is. What is most important is that we know the triune God. We know God the Father who has purposed all things. God the Son who accomplishes all things. God the Spirit whose power 
makes them effective and preserves all things. This is our God three in one. We hold fast to this because in our knowledge of God as our knowledge of the gospel. Make sure we are hold, the things we are holding on to are the things of God. This Jesus that we come to talk about in this time of year, that he's not just a baby who stays in a manger. That he is fully God. The fulfillment of all of the Scriptures. We hold fast to Him. But we got to be honest, this is our temptation too. We find comfort in the things of man. We find comfort in the things that we craft with our own hands and that, and that feel familiar to us. But it's important that we recognize our own temptations in this like that of the Pharisees. Because what they're doing Trading the commandments of God for the things of man is nothing short of idolatry. Is it a bad thing to purify yourself? Is it a bad thing to desire to be clean? To set yourself apart to be holy? Of course not. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But it is when you add those things to the commandments of God. Because as we often do, we don't think God is clear enough. We don't think God is, 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 is good enough. So we make our own laws which pretty soon when we put them next to God's laws, begin to replace God's laws. That's why Jesus doesn't just say this one time, and not just two times, but let's look at the second time here. And he said to them, verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Fine way. Same word for well or beautiful before. You have a beautiful way of doing this. So here's another Christian Mishnah. I just created a new term, Christian Mishnah. Another thing that I don't like. Um, the Christian Mishnah of sarcasm. You know how many Christians I've said, oh, we don't use sarcasm. That's just not nice. Well, I don't know how we can have a conversation without sarcasm. And, amen. <laughs> and you probably wouldn't like talking to Jesus either because you think he's literal here. You have a beautiful way of, of setting aside the commandments of God for your own commandments. This is full-on sarcasm, just throwing it in their face. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. And this is stronger, uh, a stronger accusation than the first time. He now steps it up to leaving to rejecting. You have a fine way of rejecting commandments of God, and then it goes even further. Not just holding on to the traditions of man, but establishing your own tradition. You're rejecting God's tradition. You're rejecting God's word, rejecting God's religion in order to establish your own. This is what's going on here. They're establishing a different religion, a religion of self-exaltation, where now man is the ultimate authority. They have the highest understanding and, what's even worse, self-justification. Because in this religion, they determine what is right and true and just and what it means to be right in the sight of God. So this is the height of idolatry, righteousness in their own eyes. How many people and how many of us judge ourselves by our own standards of righteousness? You ever try to share the gospel with someone and they have their own view of righteousness? You tell them about Christ and they tell you how good of a person they are and all the things that, the, that they do. It's no different. We have to be careful we're not doing the same thing. That we're not holding a standard of, of uh, justification that is just low enough for us to step over. 
but just high enough for everyone else to fall under. This is typically what, what happens. And so now we get into the contrast. Jesus brings in a specific example in verse 10. For Moses said, word of God. No one disputes that these are the words of God. Moses, or excuse me, Jesus or the Pharisees. Now Moses said, fifth commandment here. Honor your father and mother. We know this well. And whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. No one disputes this. But here's what Moses said. Now I want you to notice how strong the yous are in these next three verses. But you say. But Moses says, but you say. Similar to what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. But you say. If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you've gained from me is Corbin, that is a gift of God, then you no longer permit them to do anything for his father or mother. So here's another cultural thing. Again, if you just read gift of God, what does that mean? And so Corbin is another great pharisaical loophole, which basically says that if I say my bank account, for instance, or this asset or these these things, these, uh, this property that I have, is set apart, is earmarked for God, then no one else lays any claim on it. Let's not forget that I have a responsibility to care for my parents. And you say, well, your, your, your father or mother, they need food or something needs to be fixed. Well, this is set apart for God. So this is Corbin, and this is a, a higher purpose to say I'm going to take this money and give it to God. What a lot of them would do is they would leave it there and they'd continue to use it and earn interest on it and say this is given to God without using it to apply to their parents, if they ever offered it at all, using it as a, again, a a loophole, a technicality to neglect their, their parents. So this is what's at stake. You take your things and use them as a loophole to defy the word of God, then, verse 13, or thus, uh, 12, then you no longer permit him to do anything from his for his father and mother now third and final indictment in verse 13 and he 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 ramps it up each time thus making void the word of god by your tradition that you have handed down this is what's at stake here making void you have basically by your thoughts and by your actions you have made god's word null and void making your traditions greater than the the fifth commandment. Your tradition that your hands handed down. This is not from God. He makes it clear. You did this. You handed it down. Because when you try to add to God's Word, soon it will be equal to God's Word. And it won't be long before it becomes superior to God's Word. That's why there's a warning against this in Proverbs 30. It'll be up on the screen quickly. For every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. They become liars. This is why we guard the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Because every cult out there who adds to the Word of God are liars. Every legalist out there who adds to the Word of God are liars. Every revisionist 
out there who tries to adapt the word of God to the times are liars. And we must be on guard for these things because this is in stark contrast to the word of God breathed out by the Spirit of God versus the tradition of man. They go from useful to necessary to idols. And this is what they are at this point. And then he ends with this line, and many such things you do. This is just one example, one of many. If you want to read many more, you can read all of Matthew 23 in its context. And many such things you do. This is a squandering of their inheritance. They have the promises of God. And before we get into our application, I just want to finish in Romans 9. Paul addresses this very thing. And Paul is broken over the lostness of his kinsmen, his brothers of the flesh. And he describes what the Israelites have. Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Christ is from their race. Again, not this is important why he's not just a baby in a manger. Because if we leave him in the manger, we miss all this else. Because Christ, he is the fulfillment of the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. He is the Christ, the God who is Lord over all. And they miss that for their own traditions. But Paul addresses the same concern of Jesus here. But it is not though the word of God has failed. It's not God's word's fault. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, but they are, they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are accounted as offspring. It is through faith. Abraham, the man of faith, if we have faith in Christ, the one who is God over all, the one who fulfills everything that was given to the Israelites, these, this is the father of the children of promise. We are his sons. You know, Father Abraham has many sons. We are one of them in faith. And this is the good news from this. That it is not the law or your ability to keep it. Amen? It is not all these additional legalistic requirements. It is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who has fulfilled it all. Fully God, fully man. Took it all to the, on the cross with him. That through faith, we might have new life in him. That we might be sons of Abraham through him. So I want to give you a couple uh, application notes and anecdotes. So whether we realize it or not, we all have our own little Mishnah. We have our own little repeated ideas of things that, that should be done, ritualistic repetitions. We hear it so much or do it so much, we make it gospel. We make it canon. So whether it's pithy sayings that I hate, God helps those who help themselves. Um, as Vodibakum says, it's in second hesitation somewhere. Um, 
styles of music. Well, this honors God with this type of instrument, but this one doesn't. Or dress code. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I told Jim I was going to use him this morning. He's the distinguished gentleman with the vest on right there. Uh, Jim told me earlier, or earlier when I first met him that, well, I can't come to church because I don't have a suit. Can you imagine that when, you, when you invite someone to church, this is, the, this is what we have taught them to think. I can't go to church because I don't have a suit. Jim, you can come wearing whatever you want. We're glad you're here. This week, uh, we, have to re- we have to replace our stoves. And so the Lowe's guys come. And he said, oh, what is this? A, I don't forget what he says. A school? No, I said, no, it's a church. And he stops. And he takes his hat off, puts it in his back pocket before he walks in. I don't know what he knows about the, the, the church, but this is what is ingrained in his head. Oh, I'm in the church. I got to take my hat off. What are we passing down? What traditions are we, are we carrying on? I mean, even acceptable doctrines. We love the doctrines of grace. We are depraved. God has chosen us. Christ has died on the cross for us. The Spirit preserves us. But I have heard Christians say, I don't know how you can be saved if you don't believe these things. What? I remember coming here, and there were so many things that they did here, we did here, because we've always done them. Why? We have flags on the stage. Why? Well, we do this every year. Why? Because we've always done them. I said, well, very politely, chapter and verse, please, and, you know, uh, but for some people, many people left because they, I would dare change something they've been doing for decades. Even the font on the bulletin, yes. So people ask, it's a good time to have this conversation, the family discussion. Why don't we do Advent? Well, why must I do Advent? Again, this is a, this is a very late addition. And of course, don't, don't hear me wrong here. To talk about Jesus and the birth of Jesus is a good thing, of course. But only two of the Gospels mention the birth of Jesus. None of the epistles preached the birth of Jesus. None of the early church fathers ever celebrated the birth of Jesus. They always went right to the cross. Because the birth is good, but the cross is where everything changes. So not that Advent is, is a bad thing, but is there a better thing? Because we will preach Christ and Him crucified every week. We serve Jesus Christ, the Lord of lords and King of kings, and not a baby in a manger. That hurts your feelings, let's have a conversation afterward. Because if you keep him there, that's about as effective as he is. And again, like, don't hear me say this. These are not bad things. Should we dress in, in nice clothes? Clean your clothes. Iron them if you need to, please. But don't add these things as additional things to salvation. I love what one of my favorite John MacArthur quotes. History is not a hermeneutic. Meaning, the things from tradition do not help us interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. And the real question before we close is, what things do we put on par with the Word of God? What things have we in our own lives made dogma, made canon? What things do we think that a Christian must do and we beat ourselves up because we we don't do them, but we don't find them in the Word of God? Because in the Reformed world, many people are theologically baptizing kettles and cups and dining couches. They are missing the weightier matters of the law. So we've got to be very careful that it doesn't go any further 
because it can easily become offense to salvation. Well, you can't be saved unless you do X, Y, Z. Well, salvation must include X, Y, Z. Anything apart from sola fide or above sola fide, by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, is a different religion. It is a different gospel. So I'm glad to be in a church that sees that rightly. But, as everyone must, we must do some self-examination from time to time and make sure that we are not doing this. And so uh, next week we're going to get into more of the, the heart of the matter where Jesus digs a little bit deeper on what the motivations are for the Pharisees. So just want you to think about God's word, its sufficiency, its, its inerrancy, that we hold it up high, that we find our life and our light in it. And we guard it not by adding fences to it, but by welcoming all in to feast and the grapes and its vines. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. You are such a good and gracious God who is so patient with us in our weakness. How often we have been the Pharisees. How often we have added requirements to the law. How often we have created our own Mishnah, and we have tried to make disciples in our image. Lord, forgive us for our selfishness and our pride. Forgive us when we don't trust you. We don't think that you are good enough. We don't think that your word is enough. We don't believe that you know what's best for us. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to be people who find comfort in your word, security in your word. Let us run to it in times of joy and in times of sorrow because it leads us to you. It teaches us of you. It points us to your Son and all he has done for us. And we praise you for the good news of salvation and redemption and restoration that we find in your word. We praise you for your Spirit who teaches us and guides us and helps us to understand what you have planned for us. Our God, we are your people. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.